Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to share the stories of everyday people doing remarkable things in communities of color, all while sipping on a glass of wine. In today's episode, I have the chance to speak with Michelle Gomez, MBA. Michelle is a Latina career and life coach with a bachelor's degree in business management and a master's in business administration. With over 21 years of experience and learning, she helps women navigate and overcome obstacles that plague them in the corporate environment. She's passionate about helping Latinas achieve positions of power and influence through effective career planning and personal advocacy in order to support their advancement in hopes of helping to close the gender wage gap. Michelle also uses her expertise in executive presence, professional dossier writing, personal branding, leadership quality, and negotiation methods to empower Latinas towards their personal and professional goals. As a working mom holding down a corporate job while building her coaching business, she helps other working moms develop a work-life design that incorporates career ambition and conscious parenting through inner feminine healing. Recently, she's launched a new area of her life coaching practice called Healed Hijas, a program focused on helping adult daughters heal their Latina mother wounds. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Welcome, Michelle. I am so glad to have you here, even if it's virtually. Because first of all, I want to let people know we were supposed to do this interview in person. But things have obviously changed due to COVID-19 and social distancing. So thank you for the flexibility and taking the time to sit down with me um, virtually today. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. In fact, um, I've done more of these virtually than I have in person. So this works just fine. <laughs> I know. And I was so excited to like have you here. I love having people here. But, you know, we got to do what we have to do at this in these times. It's been really, really crazy. So before we get into anything, because we, I don't want to forget to get to the wine before we get to the cheese So for today's, I just kind of went to the fridge to see what I had. And I'm actually drinking rosé, which is rare for me. But this is actually a really dry rosé. And it's Chateau St. Michel 2018 rosé. What do you have over on your end? I have a barefoot <laughs> Pinot Noir. So are you my barefoot name, as well? Like seven bucks a bottle and I love it. Yes. I'm not sure. I can't remember how much this one was, but I don't think it was too much. So let's take our sips. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Salud. Oh, yeah. This is exactly Salud. what I need right now. Perfect. 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 So I want to start out with how are you doing right now? How are you doing in this time of uncertainty and how, just how are, how are you and your family doing? I'm surprisingly okay. Um, I struggled with anxiety for many, many years. So 
you would think that my anxiety would be on 10 right now, but I'm, I'm actually okay. I think I'm an avid reader. So it's really interesting that the book that I decided to start reading when this pandemic started to really get a lot of um, attention was the perfect book to read. And I just finished it the day before yesterday. And I'm like kind of going back and rereading parts of it that stuck with me. What book is that? It's called When Things Fall Apart. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, by, it's by Buddhist monk, Pima Shadron. Yeah. And it's just a book about how to be in the uncomfortable gray space and use it for the most beautiful breakthroughs ever, you know, because we're so used to doing whatever we can to avoid that uncomfortable space. Just right. make a choice, right or left, you know, up or down, black or white, yes or no. It's like, we, we don't know what it's like to be in that still gray, quiet, uncomfortable space. And that's a, that was a big lesson for me getting through my anxiety is learning not to judge that gray space as being wrong just I was always just of the thought that if you can make a decision you're a go-getter type of person just make a choice just go keep moving you know and but now we're all forced to stay here we have no choice you know and so this book has been so grounding for me and so I've just been really okay I'm like hey we need to stay in here for three weeks and we need to stay in here for three weeks like I'm just thankful for all the things that we are doing together and the time that we are together and that we are healthy and just the benefits of staying here you know like we're saving money because we're not going out as much I don't have to doll myself up every day so that's nice giving Um, your skin a breather right yeah I'm not spending a ton of gas you know it's like hey it's nice so I'm I can't I'm I'm okay I just got to get my kids on a schedule but other than that I'm okay (laughs) (laughs) what have you you are a career and life coach what have you seen with the women that you're working with in regards to, and what kind of advice are you giving people through this in regards to their day-to-day and how much it's changed? Sure. Well, with my career coaching clients, I am seeing, um, teaching them how to work from home because I have worked from home for so long. I know what it takes as far as discipline goes. And for them, this might be the first time that they actually have to have a productivity log away from the office. They're used to being in a cubicle. They're used to being in the office and being on the clock. And now it's it's different. So I've taught them a little bit of my methods to stay productive and organized. Some of the women I'm speaking to are actually deciding like, this is a good time to maybe brush up on my resume and look at other options. You know, I kind of like working from home. Maybe I should have looked into remote work sooner. So that's kind of cool. But for the uh, live coaching side of it, the women that I work with in the Heal Ihas space and some of my clients in that space are really dealing with a side of their mother wound that they hadn't really dealt with in a while because most of us who struggle with a mother wound, a Latina mother wound, and we're, we're so used to our culture, really wants the daughters and mothers and we're taught to really be enmeshed, to be together all the time. And so when you have a less than ideal relationship with your mom mm-hmm. and you distance yourself from her on your own accord, right? You don't go and visit her as much. You don't call her as much, you know, there's a sense of guilt a little bit because you have to, you're doing it on your own accord, but now government is telling you to keep your distance right and so there's a little bit of relief of the guilt but now you're when you're isolated 
some of the feelings of past traumas and anger and resentment and not even just with the past, but even feeling like, wow, I kind of feel guilty because I feel really okay being apart from her. This is wrong of me, you know? And so there's a lot of shame and stuff that comes up. So it's interesting having to work, help them understand that this is hard for the course, you know, like you're so used to having that guilt as like this, you know, this thing on your shoulder, you should go see mom, you know, you should call mom, you should, you know, you should just go, I know it's uncomfortable, but do it anyway, you know, asking you to contort, but now nobody's asking you to contort because the government's making it okay for you to be separate. I know it's almost a time where I feel like we've been told like from other people that global in regards to global warming and the things that we need to do to heal, like to for the earth to be able to, to help heal the earth. And I, and I feel like nothing has been done and we take advantage and of all these things and we take for granted of all the things that we live in a microwave society, right? We want what we want when we want it, how we want it and how, and quick. So I feel like this is an opportunity or a time where earth and God are just like, okay, you know what? You're not listening and we're going to make you listen. And it's, and it's like being forced, like you said, it's being forced upon us to, this is the only way it's the earth is really healing itself right now. And so, There's so much Mother Earth, quote unquote, so kind of, it's like Mother Earth and God and everything. It's like being forced upon us because I hope this lasts, though. I mean, not necessarily the the quote unquote quarantine, isolation, social distancing, but I hope the mindset of so many shift. I feel like for some it will, for some it's going to go back to business as usual and they're not going to take the opportunity to think of it. Yeah, it'd be nice if people could go, could learn during this time to go within and learn um, to be grateful for who you are. Remember that at the end of the day, you belong to yourself. Maybe families can reconnect more because, you know, kids are in the room, parents are downstairs, you know, sometimes we don't spend a whole lot of time together. Everybody's glued to their phones. So maybe this time is going to teach us not only to reconnect with ourselves, but to reconnect with socializing in a way that is actually meaningful. You know, like right now we socialize through social media and we text message and we're like, oh, I'm staying in touch because I sent her a text last week. Yeah, we're so good. Right. But that craving of actually being together. Like now I see on social media pictures of people like at parties and and, you know, holding hands and at weddings and stuff. And I'm like, man, that, I remember that like that. That seems so nice. You know, it's right? going to be nice to be able to get back to that and be around people again. Yeah. You know? Well, you talked about um, healed ehas. And I know I'm doing this a little bit backwards because normally I like to talk about how people grow up and kind of go into it. But I feel like with Hildihas, it kind of goes hand in hand. So I'm kind of doing a little bit backwards with what I normally do. So really what I want to ask is I know with that, you're saying it's a, it's right now, it's a big part of what you're doing. Can you first tell us exactly what Hildihas is and why you decided to start this movement in this part of your life coaching? Sure. So Healed Hijas is a Facebook group platform that it was created for Latina adult daughters who want to heal from their mother wounds. I launched it January 3rd of this year. I And I launched it because I had finally gotten to the other side of my own healing journey after many, many years. I, I can't really remember a time where my mom and my relationship was comfortable. It's always been either superficial or kind of toxic you know there's a lot of 
resentment and anger and pain and, you know, in my heart. And my mom, in her imperfect way, we're both imperfect. Her pain, she never actually addressed. And so a lot of the pain that she feels and the things that she hasn't addressed in her personality were put on me as a daughter, as the only daughter. I'm the oldest and I'm the only girl. And so I just always felt like I had to take on the brunt of her lack of self-support, self-sufficiency for so long. And it all started coming to a head really when I started having my own children. You know, and I started therapy, I did the book reading, I did the journaling, I did listen to things, you know, I, I thought I was doing so well, but I, I, I wasn't, you know, I think I just denied the fact that I, I was denying myself by behaving in a way that only honored her and didn't honor me. And so we had a major breakdown in our relationship last year and I hired my own life coach and worked with him. I still work with him and he really helped me a lot. And through the the healing process and I've done it all. I had to do the whole thing. Not only, I mean, because the, the, the mother wound healing journey takes a lot of things like um, that can be scary. Mourning the image of the mother you thought you should have had. Just letting that idea go because that's part of the reason why we can't forgive our moms because it's like, why can't you be what I deserved? Why, did, why can't you be that nurturing, warm, kind woman that loved herself enough to encourage me to love me? enough you know like Mm -hmm. why couldn't you be a buffer why couldn't you protect me why couldn't you make better choices all those things right letting that go mourning that image was really hard then there's the steps of like reconnecting with your inner child that was devastating and then remothering yourself so that you no longer need mom to fill this role you know now she's just a sister woman with her own pain and her own flaws and you get to remother that inner child and really build yourself up so that your inner feminine can heal. All these things, aside from dealing with the fact that my father left when I was young, and I was I, a survivor of sexual abuse when I was a child, all of these things round into one, it just all came to a head last year. And I faced a really hard decision, like, am I going to keep her in my life or not? And hiring my life coach was the best thing. And after I got to the other side of it, and I was starting to see, like, I'm okay. Like, this is good. But I also felt kind of lonely because there was no place for me to go to talk about this. Like, let's face it, Latinos, we don't talk about mental health very openly, but you talk about a mother, you get things from the Latino culture, like, no mas tienes una madre, no seas desagradecida, no seas malcriada. You know, you get all these, like, like it's, it's an offense to want to address your pain and say out loud, my upbringing wasn't ideal, yeah. you know? So there was no support for me to go. I had cousins, but them having good relationships with their moms made it difficult for me to fully open up because I'm like, I don't want to, I don't think you understand. So my life coach told me, I bet you if, you if you say this out loud one day, you will find yourself not alone. And I'm like, oh, there's no way. Are you kidding? I go, the Latino culture, would they would harpoon me. There's no way. There's no way this is acceptable in our culture. It's just too shameful. And then I felt this, like this weird, like who would work with me as a coach if I have this problem? Because people who do what I do should have a perfect life and they shouldn't have this issue. Isn't that such a terrible thing? Like we always feel like we all have something to offer, right? We all have a gift. We all have things. Just because your life is perfect doesn't mean that you don't have 
things to offer or perspective that's valuable. And I think right. that's something that we forget about ourselves that we need to make sure we remind ourselves about. And that so it sounds like that's exactly where you were. You're like, well, I'm having this. So if I'm, if my life, like you said, isn't perfect, who's going to want to work with me, but I was so scared and he's like, just do it. And so I did at the I end of the year, I went on like a, I was by you in San Diego. My comadre and I took a two day, like mommy moon. She and I just went and just hampered ourselves for two days. We stayed in little Italy and it was the best. But before I left, I sent out a blog post to my email list and just kind of told them, Hey guys, we're going to wrap up the year and I'm not going to end the year without being very transparent about something that I've been dealing with in silence for a very, very long time. And then I just shared it. And I didn't look at my email responses for the whole time we were in San Diego until the very last, the very last meal she and I had, we were at, uh, we were in uh, old town, San Diego, having brunch. She and I, we were about to get to leave and get on the road and head back home. When I was like, you know, I'm going to look at my phone. So I did. And the responses, I just sat there and read the responses and I just started to cry. I'm like, and these women in my email list that were like, oh my gosh, me too. And then they just started pouring out their stories to me on their responses. And I'm like, I, ha- I have a responsibility now. I have to give these women a place to come and talk about this safely, without judgment, without fear, you know? And so I came home and that's what I did. I, I started building the, the Facebook group, started conceptualizing what it would be like and how I wanted to serve these women. And we launched it January 3rd. And within six weeks, we had over a hundred women. I mean, that's and every time a new woman joins, she's like, is it okay if I invite my friends? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So it's grow, it's grown. And I just launched the membership site too. So that's been exciting. So you said you're the oldest and you're the only girl. How many brothers do you have? Four brothers. So, oh my gosh. Two that live with my mom and two that live with my dad. Wow. Okay. So did you, growing up, were your parents together? Point so my dad seven. left when he was seven, when I was seven, when he was seven. My dad left. I'm like, way. <laughs> I know. And then around, I just remember kind of him flowing in and out of my life at different times, uh, but nothing very stable. But I knew, but one of the times that he did flow back in, he's like, surprise, you have two brothers. So I went from having two brothers to one brother with my mom and then having two more when he, when he remarried, then my mom remarried and had a boy. So it's like, I'm the only girl. Yeah. I'm the oldest. So it was a, so you were basically expected to mother your brothers because I mean, obviously being the oldest, well, I know a lot of times within our culture and within our community, if you're the oldest, especially if you're a female and not in, it doesn't even have to be the oldest when you're the female, you're the one taking care of everybody else. If mom's not there, or even if mom's there, because especially being a single parent, mom's doing 50 million other things. And it's not even told you're, it's automatically just expected. Is that something you experienced? Somewhat. I'll tell you the difference. The one difference is um, because we didn't have a sense of machismo in the house. Um, I didn't necessarily feel like, oh, because you're a woman, you should look after them or you should serve them. It was just because I was the oldest and I was the one. My, I think I, I remember, Jessica, like being ten, from 10 years old and on, feeling like I was no longer a child or the child. I was now like a partner. So she leaned on me for a lot of things. You know, like it was just like a, a husband and wife kind of look at each other and like, okay, 
how are we going to do this? Let's make a plan. That's what she, that's the sense I got from her. Even if it wasn't verbal, it was more like, well, we have to figure it out. Like we, I need you to do this and I need you to do that. And there was no, there was no question that I just had to do it. And so, you know, making sure my brothers did their homework, start, you know, making sure the house was clean every day, making sure that um, dinner was started. Like I learned how to make rice, the eighth from fifth grade, you know? And so it was just responsible being taught to be responsible and my brothers were allowed to be irresponsible. They were allowed to be carefree. They were allowed to just do whatever they want. I was the one that had to hold order. And just because I was able to do it, doesn't make it right. You know, I, so I think I wanted to be a child, but but people stopped looking at me as a child early, early. I became just sort of a pseudo adult in this family dynamic. And so that created a lot of obstacles, I think, in my relationship with her. I'm sure that's something a lot of people that have grown up in single parent households can relate to. Do you feel like you had a childhood that you that you were felt like you were silenced or empowered? And how do you think that felt like had that developed your sense as your your sense of self growing up? So I felt a sense of empowerment and knowing that people trusted me to be responsible. Like I thought, okay, wow, I'm, I must be a, a leader responsible, like a, for people to lead. Cause it wasn't just my siblings, like my, my cousins, I was the oldest out of all of them. Oh, wow. So, you know, our, our grandma, my mom, my aunt, they would sometimes have to go and do things and they would just leave me with all these kids. Right. And so I was always just like, cuida, cuida tus hermanos, cuida tus hermanos, you know? And so that I always felt responsible and I felt good to be trusted that way. Right but it made me feel less and less trusting of the adults. Like I just thought who would leave a 10 year old with all these little kids? Like if they're all younger than me and I'm 10, I have a nine year old daughter. There's no way I'd leave her with like a two year old and a three year old and say like, I'll be right back. So I felt a sense of empowerment, but I also felt a sense of loneliness because I don't think that anyone really like looked after me anymore. It wasn't this protective, like I need to protect her. I need to watch her. I need to make sure she's okay because I became part of the artillery. I became part of the, of the army, I guess, of, of pseudo adults. And so it was, it was hard. It was, I'm appreciative because it taught me to be self-sufficient. I'm very self-sufficient and you know, from 19, I have lived at my mom's house since I was 19 years old. So 20 years ago, almost. So I feel okay. Adulting never scared me. And I thought, oh, wow. Cause, cause I saw that I was asked to be an adult pretty early. So adulting wasn't scary for me. Like it is for a lot of new adults now, yeah. right. Coming into the adult world with all the responsibilities. How um, do you think that affected you when you were in school? Because I mean, obviously 10 years old, you're like you said, like fifth grade, were you able to separate that? Because sometimes people bring that into school and that's something that weighs them down. Sometimes it's like, this is my escape. This is my time to be a kid. How was that effect for you when you would go to school? Well, scholastically, I did well. I always did well, like academically. So that was good. And I felt like that school was the only place that let me just be, being smart was enough. Um, I didn't have to do for others. I could be, do the work to show that I'm capable and that was rewarded by good grades and, like, you know, awards and stuff. So that was cool. So academically, I was fine. 
But as far as the innocence of childhood, I don't, you know what, Jessica, it's so sad to say this. I don't remember playing. You know how, like, when you're kids, I remember when my girls had dolls and they would make their, you know, when you get, they get their monitos and they yeah. make their monitos talk to each other, yeah. you know, and they're like, oh, they, and they still play and they pretend. I don't remember that. Because you weren't pretending, you were living it. pretending with toys and like being, and playing. I don't remember that. I think when I played with my brothers and my cousins and my brothers, it was more like we played school. You know, we played, I was the teacher, they were the students. But again, it was me in a role of responsibility, telling them what to do, right? Or I played the mom, they were my kids. But I was never, I, I don't remember ever feeling like I'm just one of the kids carefree and I'm, I'm using my imagination and, and I'm just letting my mind wander. I sadly don't remember that. So that's how it impacted me as far as school goes. Like I just remember feeling really weird about playing. Like when my friends wanted to play, I would look at them and like, uh, like they would give me a doll. And they're like, okay, you pretend to be her and I'm going to be her. And, let, and they would, let's play, let's make them talk. I would just feel so stupid. Was silly. So we're making our dolls talk to why? I just I think that innocence of play left me really early. You said your mom got remarried. How old were you when she got remarried? And how did that did that change the dynamic within the house? So um, she remarried when I was thirteen to her second husband. She's now married to her third, but um, that marriage lasted eight months. So it was in and out. And all, it, all, all I learned from that dynamic, what I, what I learned from that dynamic in her marriage and the marriage of the women also in, in our family is um, that men don't really have a place. You know, kind of men are there like for furniture, you know, <laughs> they're just a piece of furniture. But like, I didn't really see a lot of engagement, like letting the man be engaged with the decision making around the house and the finances and the kids. It was very much a woman in power, like my mom, my mom's sister and my grandma, like the three of them decided how things were going to go down and the men could either go to go you know get on board or buy right so I've seen marriages end because of that dynamic and so what I learned from all these marriages is you know when I get married I want to be sure that my husband feels secure in his position in my in my life and in our home is that something that you, I know you can look back and reflect on that and say, this is what I want. But what, during the time, what were your thoughts? I mean, is that because obviously when kids, they see relationships, right? They see relationships and that's how they start building their visual, visualization in regards to how relationships should be. And they start yeah. either, they either emulate that either consciously or subconsciously in some way, or they're like, I never want it to be like this. Yes. How were you and how were you, did you have relationships in high school that emulated or completely were opposite of that? Um, I remember when I started to see that, I just knew that I, it was funny. I said, I don't think I told myself, I don't think I want to get married. Like I know I want to be a mom because I've been a mother a mother sort of energy around my siblings and my cousins. So I knew I could do the mom thing. No worries. I can work and raise kids. Cause I see my mom, my mom do it. I didn't consciously put it then together that like, Oh, I'm going to need a, I'm going to need a Michelle to help me. Cause my mom was able to do it because she had a Michelle and she had a sister and a mom. So between the women, they figured out this like tribe and they all helped each other raise the kids together. Right. But I just thought, I don't, I don't want to rely on anybody you know, I don't, and I don't know that I have it in, I think I'm too strong 
for a man to marry. I just thought there's no way I, I I'm too independent and I don't want a weak man and I don't want someone to tell me what to do. So it was like, it felt like very conflicting. So I knew I was going to be someone's mom. I just wasn't sure if I was going to be someone's wife. So that's what I gained from that early on. So when I got into high school and I started having like, you know, teenage relationships, the minute I felt controlled or somebody was trying to control me or tell me what to do, I was out. I just thought, and I said, no, I can't, I'm not submissive enough to be a good wife is what I just would say to myself. And luckily, I, you know, when I was 17, I met my now husband and he is a man of true, like real authentic masculinity. And his masculinity has nothing to do with disempowering me of my femininity. And I think sometimes people forget that you can be masculine without being machismo. That's right. He's he's a masculine, secure guy. And he doesn't need to throw his weight around or overpower me to feel good about himself. And so that was new to me. I was like, wow, this is different. There's I didn't know there were guys like you out there. Because, you know, I either saw the men that my mom would date would, would either be like overpowering manipulators or super weak, submissive men. And neither one of them felt appealing to me. Yeah. And it's so when you're saying like the kind of man you were, you were hoping, that's still how I am. I've never been married. I don't have any kids. And I'm very much that way. Like I'm, I'm like, I need somebody who can handle me. I know I can be a handful. I'm very much admitted of that. Yeah. But I also need somebody who's like, who will whisper in my ear if I'm getting, and I think in my forties, I've calmed down a lot compared to when I was like in my twenties and early thirties. Yeah. But it was always like, I need to, if I were to get a little out of hand or a little bit too boisterous where I'm putting myself onto somebody instead of expressing myself, but like putting my views onto somebody who will whisper in my ear, do you hear what you're saying? Like, do you hear what's coming out of your mouth? And me and I know I'd probably be like, well, I was just kidding. <laughs> but in a loving way. But in, yes, like, exactly. To know that you're, you know, they, to be able to sense your intention behind it is not to, to make others feel badly. You just are passionate about what you have to say. And so mm-hmm. you're saying it in a way, but he's trying to be your buffer in a loving way. Yes, you because I've had both where I've had that emotionally abusive relationship. And then I've had a relationship where I didn't even respect him. He didn't have a backbone. And so right now I'm just like, you know what? I haven't found that, that middle ground. And as I've gotten older, I know my views have evolved, like you said, in more, in a more mature way where I don't necessarily need to feel like I need to be the loudest voice in the room. Sure. Because I always felt like that growing up, like, I mean, growing up in my family and you know, when you're in a Latino family, if you're not loud, you're not heard. <laughs> yeah. So that's why a lot of us are very loud. A lot of us are very boisterous is because you almost had to be even just to say hello. You're like, hey, you yeah. know, and that is still very much ingrained in me. But there's it's I've also learned to pull it in and rein it in yeah. where I know that I don't always have to be like that. You know, as Latinas, there's just a certain there's there's certain things that we carry about ourselves that we enter a room, it impacts the environment. I mean, we're so, we carry this confianza about us, right? And then, then you add to that things like the simpatia and then el humor. And then on top of that, la belleza. 
Girl, like we we almost have to pull back our fire sometimes. Yeah. So I completely resonate with that because I bet even when you don't say anything, if you walk into a room, there's a statement being heard by somebody. Like it's just the way we are. And I don't even apologize for it anymore. I'm like, hey. I'm definitely, that's one thing I'm still learning. I'm trying not to apologize or like, even if I forget to respond to a text message, I'll just say, I, I won't even say sorry anymore. I'm just like, I totally forgot to respond. And maybe I need to even figure that out. But I don't know. That's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. So growing up, when you think back as growing up as a, you know, seven, kind of being the person who becomes co-head of, by the time you're 10, you're co-head of household, basically. What do you think now, looking back now, and we haven't gotten into what your relationship is now yet, but we'll get into that. Like, what have you, what do you remember witnessing during that time in your mother that you really admired? And what were the things that you felt you were going to change as a mother based on that experience? I definitely got her work ethic. I think she was such a hard worker. And I remember watching, I was watching her getting ready for work. She was a, she was always a human resources professional in her career. And she always worked for really high profile names, like brand names that if I spat them out, you'd be like, no way she worked there in the human resources department. I'd be like, yep. So she's, she's, you know, been around and has traveled and has received awards and stuff. And so, you know, I've been to the fancy corporate Christmas parties with her, you know, she'd dress us all up in our, in our stuff and we'd go with her. So watching her get up and put on her suits and her dresses or her nylons and her hair, rollers in her hair, you know, her makeup, she was always smelling good, bien alejada. And watching her get up and go to a job that was that sort of kind of sophisticated and watching her travel and get to do all this fun stuff and, you know, seeing these awards come home with her after the Christmas parties. And, and seeing just how much of a boss she was. Because she was the type of person that could, would look in the mirror and consult with herself when she wanted to spend money. You know, she was that person, just a very driven, um, self-sustaining person. I definitely got that from her. Like when I started to build my corporate career, I was just like going after it, trying to do more, trying to, you know, make sure I was involved and get on the projects and try to get the promotion. So I definitely got that desire to make a name for myself from her definitely what I felt like I was going to change was definitely the dynamic with men I just thought I don't want to do it that way so if I don't figure it out I'm just not going to do it at all just like I'm not going to get married I'll just you know I'll just I'll just focus on work on my career and raising well-rounded children that's what I that's how what I thought my future was going to be I was going to just be one of those like you know like remember the movie um Baby Boomer is a yes, movie. yes. With the That's Diane what I thought King. my life was going to be. I oh love God, that movie. <laughs> you know, like 1980s. You know, or is it early 90s? But no, it's old, 80s. You know, it's for sure. Shoulder pads, hair short. You know, pumps, and just you know, with my kid. And that's what I thought life was going to be. So yeah, I definitely. That's what I learned: the work ethic. But I was going to change my dynamic with men. Is your mom a college graduate? Was she? Did she go? So what? Did you stay home for college? Did you end up going away? Was that something that you like knew you had to kind of get away from when you went to college or yes or no? So she kicked me out when I was 19 because she started dating a man. I, I used to joke. I'm like, I feel like 
like sometimes women are so strong at work and they have built these amazing careers some of the most educated women but when it comes to men we just lose our minds sometimes that was her I felt like she just didn't value herself enough to choose a good man so she would just date these like losers and so she had this one loser in her life at the time and I didn't like him and I didn't think he was right for her and I didn't want him around my siblings and so she she purposely ended the lease on a three-bedroom apartment we had and moved into a two-bedroom house and was like yeah we don't have any room for you so are you serious yeah and you know what's funny my older brother, my middle brother's 35 Mm -hmm. and my other brother, the baby, he's 23, still home. So I'm like, how do you kick me out at 19? I'm your only daughter, but I never went back. And again, adulting didn't scare me. So I was like, all right, then I guess this is, this is it. So what was your steps from that? Like, where did you go from there? It was hard. I had to distance myself because, you know, she just, wanted so bad to have this man in her life at any cost. And so I was busy. I was working. I was going to school. So I just got, you know, I moved in with a friend, but I was hardly home, you know, because I was working full time. I was going to school at night. And then I had a boyfriend who's my now husband. But uh, so I wasn't home anyway, you know, but either way, I noticed that as I started pursuing my education, as I started growing academically and professionally, her relationship with me started to become one of jealousy. She started to feel insecure because she was the one always on the top of her game professionally. And now here I am climbing the corporate ladder, graduating with my bachelor's, graduating with my master's, writing a book, all this stuff. And it was hard for her. It's gotten a little bit better over the last maybe three years. But you know, in that that really um, difficult time when a woman is starting to feel that sense, like, nobody's going to hire me because I'm old. Right. She was going through that. So it was hard for her to see me barely kicking off and, like, you know, things are happening, and it was hard. So instead of feeling a sense of pride where, you know, a mother would be like, I helped create this person, (laughs) it was a sense, almost a sense of jealousy. Or you said it was. was I mean, I I could sense that she was happy for me, but it was clothed in a little bit of resentment. I could sense it in her voice. I could sense it in her, her look on her face. It was just like pulling teeth. It was really hard for her. And so I just, uh, I went from doing things to make her proud to doing things and not sharing because I didn't want to feel badly from the accomplishment. Oh my gosh. That's so how, I know you said it's been the last three years. So it must've been a really long time that this whole cycle was continuing I can only imagine, I've had ups and downs with my mom and there's been moments, but generally like the lifespan of my life, my relationship with my mom is pretty good. It's really good. Actually, not just pretty good. It's really good. Mm -hmm. And there was a very bumpy time and there was a point when, when we started to rebuild this period of time, this small period of time where it was kind of, where it was a rough, that it was hard to kind of rebuild that. But it was only a short period of time that we had a rough patch. So I can't imagine having this long period of time. How have you since been able to kind of rebuild that over the last several years? How has that relationship shifted and how did you start rebuilding it? Well, I just, it's funny because I don't even think she acknowledges the shift. 
I don't even, it's so weird about the mother wound. Like I tell the ladies all the time, if you think that mom needs to participate or that mom's healing is the only way you'll heal, if you think her, she's going to be required to apologize or acknowledge your pain in any way, it's absolutely not about mom. We're not, we don't get together and like dump on mom all night. You know, it's just, no, we're, this is about you and your journey. So I really had to go within. I just wanted to stop showing up and ha- and feeling frustrated and feeling different, you know, like I just, cause I was so used to the passive aggressive digs. I was so used to the comparisons, the one upping it's, and it still gets to me. Sometimes I have triggers that I, that show up that I thought were addressed and then something comes up and I'm like, Oh shoot, I'm feeling tense in my body. I feel like my heart beat is starting to get faster, um, shortness of breath. So clearly this is a trigger I haven't addressed yet. So stuff still comes up, but I know now how to, how to acknowledge them and work through them. But for a long while I didn't. So I would go into an interaction and either be passive and try not to react or would be ready for the, like, I'd be on the pounce, like ready. Like if she's going to throw something at me, I'm going to throw something right back. And so either way, I would leave that interaction and feel depleted, feel like frustrated. And then it would stay with me for like two, three days. I would just replay that whole conversation. And I would like, what did she mean by that? What was she trying to say? Or, you know, and I just always had this sense of like dread going back and trying to talk things out. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to talk to her because, but she doesn't have, I know now she doesn't have the the capacity to communicate the way I would like, you know, and it has nothing to do with intellect. It has nothing to do with like, Oh, I have a degree and she doesn't. She likes to say that. Well, I didn't go to college. Okay. So don't throw these big words at me. She said that to me before. Oh, what are you saying? Are you saying, I don't know. I tell her, I'll try to explain. She'll say, well, I don't know what you're saying. Like, and I, she just doesn't want to acknowledge my pain, but I, I'm like, you do. Un- I don't understand why you should understand this. Why well, didn't go to college like you did. So that's why, you know, and again, these little digs. And I just thought I can't talk to her. I can't like, and the way I want to talk is clear and concise. And I want to just address the big pink elephant in the room. And, and so I really, Jessica had to let go of that expectation. Like I was expecting her to show up openly vulnerably and ready to talk like I was and she just never could you know I still remember when I told her about the sexual abuse I was 31 she got angry at me and left when you, when I told, you told her, her you were I was 31 when you told her I was 31 years old when I told her so was this obviously when you were a child when this happened was it somebody yes. who was close to the family Yes. Because obviously that's a lot of times what happens with somebody close to yes. the family. The family, it was the first one was a first person, well, it was two men. One of them was one of my uncles, like a, like an older uncle. And then another one was one of her boyfriends. Hence why I don't think she chooses good men. And so she had met her third husband and was I was hearing about her bringing him home. And so I started to get very tense about this new man being around me and my, my kids. So my therapist was like, you, you have to stop hiding this. You have to tell her. So I told her and, and I remember telling her and she got upset with me and left. So she just doesn't have what if I had, I've had other women that are not related to me that when they, you know, like Michelle, I just feels like some, you went through something. What was it? And then I will say it. And like my friend's moms 
will like hug me and like like if I'm five, you know, and they'll pull me in and they'll nurture me. And I'm like, why can't I get that in her? You know, and it's just it's just not in her. And so I really had this and and that expectation was present in every interaction, me expecting her to be warm, me expecting her to want to listen, me expecting her to accept me and acknowledge my feelings. And it's just not who she is. And I just realized that it was unloving of me to expect that of her and to withhold love because she couldn't do that. That's like me telling you, Jessica, you know what? The only way I'm going to love you is if you're six feet tall. So if you're 4'11", you got to figure it out. But that's the only way I'm going to love you. So get to it. That's impossible. That is unloving to expect someone to be something different and conditioning your love on them being something they can't be. And it's just... Not everyone is super maternal. Not everyone has that connection to their vulnerability and has the bravery to face the hard things. And so for I realized I, I'm doing this to myself. I am making this harder because I'm expecting her to show up and be someone totally different. So that was part of the process really was to let go of those expectations. And, and it came, everything else kind of happened after that, like addressing the, the image that I thought of a mother I should have had, uh, you know, letting go of the way I think things should have happened, replaying how that day when I told her about the abuse, what I wish would have happened, I had to let that go. Like, it's just, a, it's a sense of just fear is, and forgiveness really is letting go of what you thought it should have been. Right. And there's also this sense that, and I'm sure it's frustrating because I know in instances for me, it's been frustrating when they don't, like you said, they don't want to acknowledge or they pretend it never happened or so everything was always okay. Everything was always fine. And I feel like within our community in particular, and also I think a lot of communities of color that are very similar in regards to, you that know, once you went to, okay, and now everybody knows. Like yeah. And now it just gets brushed under the rug and then yeah. we don't ever talk about it again. And then we just move forward like nothing ever happened, but that's what creates generational trauma and why things continue to pass down and pass down because we never work through it. So you were talking earlier about when you met your husband and, or now your now husband, because when you met him, at what yeah. point did you know that he was that it was different, that this relationship with him was different. And did you have to kind of work through that? Because you might have known it in your head, but the way you had acted, that sometimes those sometimes don't correlate, right? Those sometimes don't match. Did you have to work through that to truly get to the core and the heart and have a healthy relationship? Yeah, I, I had to in through therapy and we went to like marriage workshops. We would enroll in like marriage boot camps or a church to kind of, you know, glean off of the wisdom of all these other older we, we always um we have like older friends that have been married for 20, 25, 27 years, and we're like, wow, we don't come from a line of that. Like we, you know, he and I both came from broken homes. So we came into marriage really like does anyone have the playbook? Like, how do we do this? Like, we didn't know, you know? And so when we found a church in our first year of marriage, we found a church that had these annual marriage boot camps. We're like, oh, shoot, let's do it. And so we met our group of friends there and we gleaned off of the wisdom and the experiences that these, these couples had. And, you know, the fact that they've overcome so many things, you know, and, and we were like, okay, we felt safer, but through that, we learned a lot about just our individual responsibility to be happy. Like he, I, you know, for a long while, I thought men were supposed to make us happy. 
like if I'm broken, if my dad left and this happened to me when I was a kid and, and I'm unhappy, like you need, you need to make me happy. That is your job. If you're in a relationship with me, you, you need to fill all those broken spaces in me. And that's what I thought marriage was. And so when I, when I realized that's not what it is, like he's a broken person with his own cracks. Right. I'm a broken person with my own cracks. So to ask him to fill my cracks when he's still trying to figure out his own was really unfair. And I learned, and I even, my mom, same way. I'm looking at my mom, like as much as I wish you were different, that's not the cards that you were dealt. So you're really from your own experiences. We're all just doing that. But so we don't, but we don't have to stay broken. We can work on ourselves and heal. And so I had to learn how to really let go of the expectation of him to be something different and realize that he was the right one for me the whole time because he's not controlling because he's not overbearing because he's not like a super jealous guy or anything like that. Like that's what I need because I was so driven and I was so ambitious. Like I don't have time to have relationship drama. I just don't it, like relationship drama would feel so inconvenient to me at the moment. You know, I'd be like, I don't have time for this, you know? Yeah. And so God knew what he was doing when he put us together. But yeah, I took, I, I would say the first maybe maybe five years were hard, you know, because we were just trying to figure it out. Like we just thought we had to be these two totally different people or that now we were going to be better because the other person was going to fix it for us. And that's not fair. You're just just two people trying to find happiness. And he was able to find his happiness. He knows what he likes. He likes his hobbies and stuff. He knows what makes me happy and the, the way I like to spend my time. So we just try to give each other space to do that stuff. Because people, I think people forget that even though you're married, technically you're one unit, you're still two separate people and you have to have your own life in order to have a life together, right? You have to have two individual lives to be able to come together. Yeah. And that's the great thing too, is I realized that I don't need a man, but I want him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I tell him all the time, I don't think I would be a good dater. Like, I don't think I'd be a good single person. I just don't know that I would put a ton of effort into a man right now. You know, if I, I go, you know, if I didn't met you, I don't, I don't know that I would really, or I would be a terrible dater. Like, I just wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't really put a lot of energy into it. So, but he makes me want to set aside time. He makes me want to prioritize my energy so that when he gets home or when it's the weekend, I'm here, I'm present, and we're doing stuff together. So it's nice. No, I love that. Have you have you found anything, any patterns that you've had to consciously break with your kids from your mom? Like maybe certain things that you found yourself in situations with your mom that you started to see those repeat in your kids and then go, whoa, 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 yeah. time out and have to like reassess what you're doing? Totally. I think the big one that stands out to me, Jessica, is, you know, my mom worked really hard, right? And so I was always really good about thanking her for everything we had. I was well aware that she got up every day, Monday through Friday, and got herself dressed and get yourself a cup of coffee, drop us off at school, and then she would head off to work. And then she would come home, get out of her stuff, start dinner, you know, and so I... When, when she would take a shopping or buy his shoes and stuff, or we would, she would always, my mom's way of showing love is through things. Even now, like she just wants to buy you. She wants to, it's probably not the right words to say, but she likes to buy you things. That's mm-hmm. her way of expressing love. That's her love language. Gift giving. Yes. Yeah. Gift giving. She would always want to buy me things. And I just felt like you work so hard 
need this other pair of Jordans, mom. I'm okay. Like, you know, she was always wanting to give me things to show me her love. And I was like, I don't need all that stuff. In fact, I started working early. I was 16 when I had my first job. So I always like liked the idea of buying my own things because I worked for it. So I wouldn't make her feel responsible for buying me things. My brothers would. So when my brothers would lose things that she bought or destroy things that she bought, she'd be like, I worked so hard for that. And, and she thought, because in her mind, giving them this was love. So when they destroy it or ruin it or give it away, she would take it as you're being so ungrateful right now. Like you, you are hurting me by showing this ungratefulness. So, at, you know, my, my oldest, she is very much like how I was growing up. She is very self-sufficient, responsible. And I don't even put a ton on her really, but she is just by nature, very responsible and very even keel. And she doesn't ask for a lot, but she gets a lot anyway, because she's super spoiled. But she, you know, she is very like, mom, thank you. Mom, thank you for my life. I really, I'm very grateful, mom, for my life. And I'm like, oh, you're welcome, honey. Like, it makes me feel good. My nine-year-old, she is not that way. She <laughs> is very more like, well, what else are we going to do today? Well, what else are we going to buy? Well, so where are we going today? Like, you have to entertain her. She likes she likes to shop. And I'm not a gift giver. That's not the way I show love. It's hard for me sometimes when she does come off as, like, unimpressed with the stuff that we're doing or the things that we have. I can, I can get into that frame of mind, like my mom, like, are you, and I perceive her to be ungrateful, like she's being a brat. And I've had to tell her at times, you know, sometimes when you make those comments, honey, it makes me feel sad because it makes it feel like you don't appreciate what you have, you know? And she'll tell me like, oh, mom, I'm sorry. That's not what I meant. I'm like, okay, well, it's good to know. Cause that's the story I would tell myself. So I, that's the cycle I've had to change. Like now I know if she complains like that, we talked about it, I don't immediately go to the story that I'm not doing enough, I'm not a good enough mom, what I've given her isn't enough, you know, she's such a brat, there's nothing I do is ever good enough, because that's what I would go into. That's the story my mom would tell herself. And so that's a pattern I've had to, I've had to learn to disassociate from. Yeah, I mean, it's always good once you, once you realize it. Now that you've been doing Healed EHAS, even though it's you know, you launched it in January. Have you seen your relationship with your mom, your husband, your kids change at all since you've started this journey and working with other women? Have you seen any any shifts in your relationship? Well, with my mom has no idea I'm even doing it. So yeah, she has no clue. So it's and just I, even I don't from even it. just from your perspective, have you yeah. just well, from hearing other people because say, I have I have had to, you yeah. know, like I said, removing the expectation of her to be different, removing the expectation of her. Now I'm, I'm just adjusting and I'm, I'm, she's slowly adjusting, but it's still a work in progress. Right. Like one of the new things that I've noticed is that it bothers me when, when she tries to enmesh herself in situations, like even this whole thing with the pandemic, right? The kids are out of school or home and you know, she's called me a couple of times and said, okay, so the kids aren't in school right now. I'm like, right, they're home. She's like, okay, so what are we going to do? What do we have to do about their day? And, I, and again, I'm, it's a trigger for me. I'm like, um, girl, we, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I got it. Thank you. Again, I've been so self-sufficient for so long. I don't know what it is. To, I'm not a codependent person is what I'm saying. So when I have someone who, 
even suggests a codependent kind of, kind of arrangement, it, it bothers me. So I have to work through that because I'm sure she's not doing it to try to try to bother me. She's just like trying to help. But I also know that she needs to feel a part of things because she likes to feel involved. Right. So I, it is something that my dynamic with her in that sense is that I'm still trying to show her like, this is the boundary. Okay. Just, just respect my boundary and we'll be fine. If I need help, I will ask. But yeah, that's my relationship with her right now. We speak, we do kind things for one another, but there's still a healthy boundary and I, and I try to maintain that. So that's my relationship with her right now. With my husband, it's we're still the same. Everything's, everything is pretty the same with he and I. The only thing is he'll tell me something, like he'll meet someone or he'll hear, hear a story, like even a sports analogy, you know, he'll hear about a, an athlete and the athlete will start talking about their relationship with their mom. You can see the pain and he'll be like, you need to create a healed hijos. <laughs> <laughs> or he'll, he'll tell me about somebody and he's like, oh, you got to see, she needs healed hijos. You got to invite her to your group. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I think he feels a lot more excited for me in the healed hijos stuff than I had ever been in the career coaching type stuff. And with my kids, I mean, you know, I, I in my journey, I've really picked up on the practices of conscious parenting. So I just, you know, I, I do my best to just remember that they're not mine. They're not my property. I was gifted the, the gift of bringing them here, but they're their own people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're here to have their own experience, and I can't let my ego parent them. Like, I can't, like, make them my little foot soldiers, and they have to act like me, be like me, do like me. You know, like, I I have to remember that they're just their own essence. I so appreciate Dr. Shafali's work on conscious parenting and, the, like, being an awakened family. Um so my, I still struggle, though, to, like, make time to just stop working and just be. And I, I worry that one day they're going to grow up and write a book about a mom who just always was always working. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to go into the questions that I ask everybody. But cool, before we go it. to those, you, is there anything else that maybe I didn't ask in regards to your work and Hilda Ehas that you want to make sure that you say before we get into these other questions? Yeah, I think two really important things. Um, number one, you're not alone. You know, I know it seems, you know, this conversation can seem really lonely because there was no place before to come and talk. And I know it's still taboo to talk about, but in, in our Heal the E-Hats group, it's, this is a transparent place. We engage in really hard and tough conversations. There's women that resonate with your experience more than you know. So if you feel like you're by yourself and there's no place for you to go, this is why we created it. Know that. And number two, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I've heard a lot through the work that I've read, and there's so many women who've done work in the mother wound journeys, like, you know, Bethany Webster and Karen Anderson and um, like Carol McBride and Dr. Ellen Ballone. These are all like women that have done so much work in the mother wound space, but I had never found a Latina woman speak to the, just the colonialism behind it all. And I, I learned a lot, but one of the things that I think a lot of women believe it's a myth and I think it's important that women know if you think that this will all go away when she passes it doesn't there are still women that mom has been gone for a couple of years and there's still pain when she remembers her there's still resentment and sadness and anger and regret with the with the way things ended or even just like I wish I would have told her this you know I would feel it's almost like they can't swallow completely 
like a big, big ball in your throat. And so, no, it doesn't go away when mom passes. It doesn't just automatically heal, right? Um, and there's also this misconception like, oh, out of sight, out of mind, you know, if I don't speak to her, as long as I, you know, I haven't spoken to my mom in seven years, so I'm good. You're not. Because it'll the mother wound impact will show up in your relationships with men, your relationships with women, and how you spend your money, how you parent, how you treat yourself, your habits. I mean, it all we all numb in different ways, and we all pick up on our unhealed toxicity in the relationships we have with people. So healing your mother wound or addressing your mother wound will will do wonders for you, and you don't have to be afraid. We're here, but don't assume that, oh, well, my mom is sick. So, you know, in a few years when she passes, this will be done. Or like, I haven't spoken to her in 10 years, so I'm good. No. If I ask you to, well, tell me about your relationship with your mom and everything comes up so easily, it could just come out like word vomit. Then it feels like it happened yesterday. So clearly the past is not in the past. So it's it's a good thing to address this and we've created a safe space for you to do it. Oh. Thank you so much, Michelle. I mean, I think, like I said, I think a lot of people will find so much value in in this. So some of the questions I ask everybody is what do you wish you had known when you started out? And it could be life coach journey or uh, when you started out, maybe even in the Healed EHAS journey. I think I'll start with the coaching. When I first launched my company a year and a half ago, what I wish I would have known is that you can't pay your way to experience. I, spent I like that. <laughs> I spent a lot of money trying to cut corners. And and I'm not one to be very frivolous with money. So I, I was, it was a hard lesson. Like I just beat myself up. Like, but yeah, it, it's going to take just, you know, you definitely pay for coaching, pay for services, you know, go to the webinars, attend the business summits, learn, learn, absorb, absorb, read, read a lot of books, but you're going to get the most out of your business or out of anything by just doing, because we can read, we can become intellects in anything, but if you're not doing it, if you think, well, if I just pay my way up to the front, you know, the front of the line, everything will be good, but it doesn't happen that way. Even if you get to the front of the line, if you don't have the experience and the know-how and you, you haven't been to the letdowns, the mud on your face, the nobody's showing up to your webinar, the, you know, the, the people not wanting to pay for that amount and not wanting to work with you and, you know, the trolls on the internet. If you haven't been through any of that, you won't be ready for the success. So that's what I would wish I would have learned. Yeah, failure failure prepares you for success, right? Yeah, completely. What are you curious about right now? I'm curious to see how this society is going to is going to be different after this pandemic is over. I really am. And I'm of Me course I'm curious to see what this next uh, presidential run is going to bring us because I've heard like possibly a woman vice president, which would be interesting to see. So, I mean, I'm excited to see. Uh, I think it's interesting, though. I actually read a post how how everybody who was against socialism all of a sudden is really okay with it now. Yeah, I read that too. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'm curious about that. What is something, and it doesn't have, it could be professional or personal that you Mm -hmm. failed at? Well, I actually had a really big failure recently and this is the first place I'm going to talk about it. Yay. (laughs) Yes, I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. I actually got threatened with a cease and desist letter recently. My first book, I had to pull it off the shelves recently. I had to pull it off of Amazon. This was not even 10 days ago. Oh, yeah. wow. 
that there was a woman that had, uh, I had quoted in the book, she wrote, she wrote in advance praise on my book. She's a highly respected woman on imposter syndrome because my book was about imposter. I talked about imposter syndrome for like half a, you know, one chapter. And then the rest of the chapter was about career coaching in my story. And um, I went on a podcast. I went on a few podcasts. And so when I talked about my book, I failed miserably. I failed to reference her. And so she was very upset, understandably so. I mean, I referenced her in the book, but I think when I got on the podcast and people were asking me about the book, I would just talk about the, what was in the book, about, but all the, the studies of imposter syndrome, like the science behind imposter syndrome, you know, its, it's originations and everything. That's her jam. That is her life. She's been doing this for 20 plus years. I am not an imposter syndrome expert. I just speak on it because it was a part of my experience. And so I revert to her work when talking about it. But in my book, I talk about it briefly and then I talk about how to overcome it. And so when I went on a few podcasts, I was so concerned about being accurate on what she wrote that I forgot to mention she wrote it. So it came off as it was mine which was so not my, so not what I was trying to do, but I realized that's what I had been doing. So she was upset. She's like, I, I now remove permission. I don't want to be in your book. And, I, and she started emailing all these podcast hosts, like take this interview off. I don't want it out there. And she was like, if you don't do this, if you don't pull your, your books off the shelves, I'm going to send you a cease and desist letter. And after that, my attorney will be, from the publishing house that she works with is going to reach out to me. So I was terrified, tremendous failure, tremendous. So I started to look at my book as like a failure. My first book that everyone loves. I had all these amazing Amazon reviews and everyone, I actually actually even had a friend call me yesterday. She's like, I'm trying to order copies of your book for my friend. She's really going through it. And I went on Amazon and it's not there. I said, yeah, um, long story. (laughs) So yeah, that's been a huge failure that just happened. So I'm doing the responsible thing. I'm honoring her wishes and I'm taking the lesson and I'm actually going to rewrite my book and I'm going to take her name off and I might even change the title, but after it's all over, it'll feel more like mine and it'll be a a different vibe. So that's one of the major failures I just experienced. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing, especially because a lot of times we revert to something that we're, that we're very far removed from that we could still that we could see clearly so to be able to hear something that's like you're going through presently especially with all of this other stuff going on is I'm very grateful and appreciative that you shared that because I think Thank a lot you. of people are going through things right now that they're feeling like failures and, and different things so when you hear somebody going through it at the same time instead of just way beyond it it sometimes feel like you have you know, you have somebody there with you by your side. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, I broke down that one day. I even went in the healed EHAS group and was like bawling because I felt so disappointed in myself for upsetting her. And then I went back to the interviews that she was talking about. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I completely didn't even mention her name. And I understand that. It's like if I, what if 20 years from now, somebody goes on a podcast and tries to talk, talk about healed EHAS and I'm like, I better, you know, I'd be upset because I'd be like, I, I did the work. I'm the one who watched this and I built this. And so I, I completely understand her yeah. frustration. And so that way I followed through with her wishes right then and there. I called my printing company. I'm like, pull it off. You know, if you, if there's orders that are pending, refund them. 
you know, and I, I went on KDP Amazon, pulled off my, my man my transcript so that people could order copies and people could download Kindle copies. So it's not available anywhere right now. Ooh, okay. We're ready for the fun ones. Let's do it. What is your favorite word? My favorite word is the one that's grounding me through this whole pandemic. Impermanence. I read it in the book by Pima Chitron that I was just telling you about the uh, when things fall apart. It just it's the beauty of knowing that nothing is permanent. This too shall pass. Just like sun becomes night and becomes sun again. You know, mm-hmm. just like there's there's times for anxiety, there's times for sad, there's sadness, there's times for happiness, there's times for joy. There's nothing is permanent, and so knowing that this isn't we're not doomed forever makes me feel at peace. Nice. What is a dream that scares you? A dream that scares me? Um, I want to be on stage with Oprah Winfrey. That is a scary yep. dream. I mean, that's a great I want her dream. to hold my book in her hand, whatever book I've written at the time, and I want her to interview me. I want to be on Super Soul Sunday. That's <laughs> a big dream. It's a big scary dream. As scary as it, as it is, though, I'm ready. Like, if she called me tomorrow and said, can I fly you to Santa Barbara? Said, yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> and when that happens, you'll have to come back. We'll yeah. have to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, what is your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? BJ's? I do like BJ's. Uh, and my favorite is the avocado egg rolls. <laughs> oh, I like those too. Those are so good. Okay. And the last, well, we always end. The last question we uh, always ask is wine, red, white, or rosé? I know it's not rosé, but red no, or red. It's red, for sure. <laughs> and you have a specific tie. I know you like Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Do you have a specific type of Pinot Noir that you like? Uh, I like Barefoot. That's my favorite. Yay. It's good. I love it. I, I you know, and I tell people I'm not super fancy. You know, I, I like what I like. <laughs> <laughs> I get No, I, I get you. Okay, so if people want to reach you, how do they do that in regards to Healed EHAS, in regards to your life and career coaching? I think the best place to start would be my Instagram. If you go to M, at MG, those are my initials, Michelle Gomez, MG Success Coach, the link in my bio sends you to anything, whether you're looking to do career coaching or you're looking to get involved with Heal Pihas, it's all there in the link in the group. And then join the Facebook group because the Facebook group, we go in there live once a week. We share different topics every week. And I just launched the Heal Pihas, what's called the Heal Pihas Inner Circle. It's a membership program where we not only provide content, but we have uh, meditations, prayers, journal prompts. Uh, we'll do Zoom calls, things like that. It's more interactive for collective healing, you know, because really you need a sisterhood around you to get through this process. Yes. All right. You heard it. So, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Okay. I know that sometimes these are things that are not easy to talk about, but I think by sharing your story, you're really helping a lot of other people as well. So please make sure to reach out to her on her social media. And if you have any questions in regards to the books, I will have Michelle send me uh, the names of the books and the authors that she referenced so we can put those in the show notes. So thank you guys for listening. And until next time, saludos. Thank you, Michelle, for sharing your journey and why you created Healed EHAS. I know there are so many people that are going to be able to get so much healing done through your platform. 
So if you found the information that Michelle shared helpful and want to learn more, please make sure to reach out to her via her social media channels. They are all linked in the show notes. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? Then please reach out to me via my social media channels. You can reach me on Instagram at The Wine and Chisme, Facebook, The Wine and Chisme Podcast, and on LinkedIn, The Wine and Chisme Podcast as well, because I want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are always appreciated, and those good reviews are appreciated even more. So until next time, mi gente, saludos.